Chapter One of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter One. Some years ago, on a bright morning in the beginning of September, Three men, each eager for the enjoyment of the pure air and eye-refreshing greenery of the country and the invigorating breezes of the coast, were sitting in a dim and dingy room in Simmons Inn, the dimness and dinginess of which contrasted unfavourably even with such sunlight as could be found on the farther side of dingy Fetter Lane. One of the three was a clergyman, but did not look like one and another, who was not a clergyman, had much more of the conventional clerical aspect, though it was the opinion of the curate, imparted to the author in a confidential whisper, that in his endeavour to look like a clergyman, he only succeeded in looking like a sheriff's officer in disguise. The third man was the present writer, who looks like—it is hard to say what— for he was once erroneously supposed to be a retired acrobat, and on another occasion was mistaken for a Wesleyan minister. We were arranging the programme of a holiday trip to the seaside, and had no difficulty in determining that our destination should be the coast of Kent. The gentleman who cultivated a clerical aspect but had been deterred from taking orders by consideration of the difficulty of bringing up six daughters upon the stipend of a curate, had a married sister living at Dover, and wished to make that ancient town his goal. For me, the scenery of Kent had a peculiar charm, and the bracing air of the North Sea was as the elixir of life. But to run down by rail to the seaside, shot through long tunnels and deep cuttings almost as swiftly as one of Jules Verne's heroes was shot to the moon, and to sit upon the pier at Dover, or the sands at Ramsgate, or the cliff at Margate every morning until the time came for my return to London, was not my way of compressing the utmost amount of enjoyment into the week or ten days to which my holiday extended. I love to turn my back upon the close streets of towns, to avoid even the dusty highways, and to explore the narrow tracks among the golden-blossoming firs and broom, or purple-flowering heath of broad commons, to ramble through green lanes fringed with the feathery fern, and fragrant with the scent of wild flowers, to thread the half-hidden paths through woods, where furred or feathered fellow-creatures run or fly in freedom, and the brick-and-mortar world is quite shut out, to wander by the banks of rivers far from towns, with the sound of water rushing over a distant weir to lure me on, to follow the windings of a rocky coast, where a new view is discovered as each bold point is rounded, and the receding tide forms little pools, in which tiny crabs lurk, and narrow channels between seaweed-festooned rocks. It was my desire, therefore, to make a pedestrian tour through portions of the beautiful county of Kent, 
and my admiration of the genius of one of the greatest novelists of any age led me to suggest a visit to the numerous localities associated with incidents in Dickens's inimitable and immortal works. The idea was well received. The curate would have gone anywhere with congenial companions, and our friend only stipulated that we should not spend more than three days between London and Dover. Away we went, therefore, and were on the deck of a Gravesend steamer before the sun had reached the zenith, making the voyage performed by Pip and his companions in an open boat, and which terminated so disastrously for the man whose safety they were endeavouring to secure. As on that occasion, it was a bright day, and the sunshine was very cheering. The pool, more crowded with shipping than in Pip's day, and more turbid and offensive to the senses, was slowly threaded, and then our vessel made more rapid progress, and green hills began to be seen upon the right. By imperceptible degrees, as Pip records, as the tide ran out, we lost more of the distant woods and hills, and dropped lower and lower between the muddy banks, but the tide was yet with us when we were off Gravesend. Landing at the town pier, we ascended the narrow high street, leaving behind us ancient and fish-like smells, and skirting the eastern brow of Windmill Hill, descended the shady declivity of Sandy Lane to the southern foot of that eminence. Opposite the lower end of the lane is the commencement of a pleasant footpath, which we followed across green pastures to Singlewell Lane, and then turning to the left, and passing some old cottages and a pleasantly situated little hostelry known as the Halfway House, found another footpath on the right, leading through hop gardens and arable fields to the village of Cobham, where Mr. Tupman retired to conceal his woe from the world, and Mr. Pickwick made that famous antiquarian discovery which rivals that of the inscription pronounced Roman by Scott's antiquary Jonathan Oldbuck, and so contrariwise interpreted by the roving mendicant Edie Ochiltree. We passed the picturesque old church, pausing only to step into the little burial ground and peer through the windows at the monuments of the Cobhams, and went through the village passing the clean and comfortable little alehouse called the Leather Bottle, which the great novelist has made famous as the retreat of Tupman when crossed in love. Presently the extensive park spread out on our left, surrounded by wooded hills, which form a background of dark verdure to the noble hall. Deer grazed on the green slopes, or rested in the shade of the magnificent oaks and elms, of which, besides some fine clumps, there are avenues across the park in every direction. We sat down for a while on the greensward, just within the gates and under the shade of a far-spreading elm, and drew upon our memory cells for the description of the walk of the Pickwickians across the park to recall to the world their lovelorn brother. A delightful walk it was for it was a pleasant afternoon in June, and their way lay through a deep and shady wood, cooled by the light wind, 
which gently rustled the thick foliage, and enlivened by the songs of the birds that perched upon the boughs. The ivy and moss crept in thick clusters over the old trees, and the soft green turf overspread the ground like a silken mat. They emerged upon an open park, with an ancient hall displaying the quaint and picturesque architecture of Elizabeth's time. Long vistas of stately oaks and elms appeared on every side. Large herds of deer were cropping the fresh grass, and occasionally a startled hare scoured along the ground with the speed of the shadows thrown by the light clouds, which swept across the sunny landscape like the passing breath of summer. "'If this,' said Mr. Pickwick, looking about him, "'if this were the place to which all who were troubled with our friend's complaint came, "'I fancy their old attachment to this world would very soon return.' "'I think so, too,' said Mr. Winkle. "'And really,' added Mr. Pickwick, after a half-hour's walking had brought them to the village, "'really, for a misanthrope's choice.' This is one of the prettiest and most desirable places of residence I ever met with. In this opinion also both Mr. Winkle and Mr. Snodgrass expressed their concurrence, and having been directed to the Leather Bottle, a clean and commodious village alehouse, the three travellers entered, and at once inquired for a gentleman of the name of Tupman. To that place of refreshment, where we had ordered dinner in passing, I and my companions returned, and passing through a door at the end of the passage, entered the room in which Tupman was found at dinner by his brother Pickwickians, a long, low-roofed room, furnished with a large number of high-backed, leather-cushioned chairs of fantastic shapes, and embellished with a great variety of old portraits, and roughly coloured prints of some antiquity. Under the roof of this old-fashioned house, Dickens passed a night in the autumn of 1841, and the beautiful park of Cobham was at all times one of his favourite resorts. On the particular occasion just mentioned, he was returning from the annual sojourn which, at that period of his life, he was accustomed to make at Broadstairs, when, meeting his friend, Mr. John Forster, at Rochester, they passed a pleasant day at Cobham, sleeping at the leather bottle, and on the following night at Gravesend, after another day's rambling in this delightful neighbourhood. It seems probable, though the fact is not mentioned by the novelist's biographer, that they would not be two days in the neighbourhood without visiting Swanscombe Wood, where, according to tradition, the men of Kent made such a resolute stand against the troops of William the Conqueror on their march to London after the decisive battle of Hastings, that the victorious Norman granted them the confirmation of their ancient rites and customs. This, according to the tradition, was the origin of the distinction, the memory of which has been preserved to the present day, between men of Kent and Kentish men. But there is another explanation, namely that the former term was applied to the original inhabitants, and the other to later settlers in the county. 
all that seems certain is that the residents west of the Medway have always called themselves men of Kent, and their neighbours beyond the right bank of that river Kentish men. Swanscombe Wood, which I visited on another occasion, is of considerable extent, stretching northward to the village of that name, and eastward to the lane leading from Southfleet to Greenhithe. It consists chiefly of oaks, and just within its northern borders is a cave called Clapper Knapper's Hole, associated with which are many legends and traditions. A green lane intersecting some small hop gardens leads from this part of the wood to the village, which is entered near the picturesque little church, said to be one of the oldest in Kent. This character applies, however, only to the lower part of the tower and portions of the walls, in which Roman bricks are mingled with masonry of Saxon origin. Four years later than the occasion to which reference has been made, Dickens drove to Cobham from Rochester, accompanied by his wife and her sister, and his friends Maclise, Gerald, and Forster. They visited the church, where there is an ancient wooden screen, an old round font, and several memorial brasses of the Cobhams, and afterwards strolled through the park. During his residence at Gad's Hill, this was one of Dickens's favourite walks, his fond recollection of which is evidenced in a passage of one of his letters from Lausanne, written in 1846. The green woods and green shades about here are more like Cobham in Kent than anything we dream of at the foot of Alpine Passes. He would have come this way even more frequently than he did, could he have been allowed to take his dogs into the park. One of those faithful and intelligent companions of his rambles, Don, the Newfoundland dog, whose rescue of one of his pups from the Medway is recorded by Mr. Forster, is now in the possession of the Earl of Darnley, but his mate, Linda, lies under one of the magnificent cedars in the shrubbery at Gadshill Place. Having refreshed and rested themselves at the leather bottle, the three pilgrims again entered the park, which they crossed towards the close of the afternoon, when the giant oaks and elms were throwing long shadows athwart the velvety greensward, and gleams of golden light played among the foliage and shimmered upon the grass beneath the spreading branches. Time did not permit the discovery of all the sylvan beauties of the park, among which are an avenue of four rows of limes, more than half a mile long, and a magnificent chestnut with a girth of thirty-two feet, known as the Four Sisters, from the four arms into which the enormous trunk divides before spreading out its branches. This fine tree stands about a mile from the hall, near the path leading to Knight's Place Farm. Emerging from the park at the lane leading to Chalk, we passed through more beautiful woodland scenery, the leafy shades of shorn wood, where the wood-pigeons cooed among the topmost branches of the trees, and many small birds were twittering their last morsels of song until to-morrow's sun should again prompt them to melody. On the right, beyond the wood, is the village of Shorn, the quiet, picturesque churchyard of which was often the resting-place of the great novelist at the close of a walk from Gad's Hill, which the heat of the day, or some other restraining circumstance, prevented him from extending. We reached the high-road at the little village of Chalk, where Dickens passed his honeymoon, 
paying for the holiday with the money which he received for the first and second numbers of the Pickwick papers. Returning to Gravesend through Milton, which has grown to be part of the town, we refreshed at the house at which we had arranged to pass the night, and then started again for a walk along the seaweed-strewn margin of the river, in the direction of those long reaches below Gravesend, between Kent and Essex, where the river is broad and solitary, where the waterside inhabitants are few, and where lone public houses are scattered here and there, in search of the scene of Magwitch's fatal encounter with the Thames police. Threading the lane in which the custom-house stands, we pass the fort which at that point commands the river and the flat expanse of Gravesend Marsh, crossed the canal which connects, or used to connect, the Thames with the Medway, and continued our walk along the side of the river, which, as Pip observed, turned and turned while everything else seemed stranded and still. Pip's description of the scene came forcibly to my mind as we followed the winding shore by the fast-fading twilight, with the blue-grey river and the level marshes before us stretching away to the Medway and the sea. For now the last of the fleet of ships was round the last low point we had headed, and the last green barge, straw-laden with a brown sail, had followed, and some ballast lighters, shaped like a child's first rude imitation of a boat, lay low in mud, and a little squat shoal lighthouse on open piles stood crippled in the mud on stilts and crutches, and slimy stakes stuck out of the mud, and slimy stones stuck out of the mud, and red landmarks and tide marks stuck out of the mud, and an old landing stage and an old roofless building slipped into the mud, and all about us was stagnation and mud. We seemed to be traversing a region which had, long years before, been wrecked and submerged by an inundation, so slimy was every remnant of man's work, so ruinous and decayed every black structure, so melancholy the ripple of the tide upon strips of shingle, and the rustle of the half-dry seaweed that clung to mouldering piles and slimy masses of chalk. Not a human being was in sight. Not a sound of human life was heard, save our own voices and our own footfalls upon the uneven path. Presently, a dark, shapeless mass on the right, which we had sighted some time before, resolved itself into a black and ruinous mill. Many years must have passed since grist was taken to that tumble-down old building, which looked like a part of those seeming vestiges of a flood-wrecked world which we had passed before. The sails were broken, there were large openings in the boarded sides, the interior showed only decaying and cobwebbed joists. Just beyond this wreck stood a public house, with the sign of the ship and lobster swinging before it, and a light, the only one visible all around us, shining from one of the lower windows. This, we decided, must be the house at which Pip and the escaped convict passed the night preceding the frustration by the Thames police of the latter's attempt to get away from the country in a passing steamer bound for Hamburg. When I awoke, says Pip, the wind had risen, and the sign of the house, the ship, 
was creaking and banging about with noises that startled me. The curate and I lighted our pipes at this house, and having ascertained that there was a footpath across the marshes, if we could only find it in the obscurity that was now gathering over land and water, and having found it keep the track and not walk into the canal, we began to retrace our steps. A sharp lookout enabled us to find the track through the marshy pastures and the little wooden bridge over the canal, and by the time we reached the by-road from Chalk to Higham, the moon had risen, and the planet's silvery light reconciled my companions to my proposition that we should turn up the narrow sandy lane leading to Chalk Church, instead of going direct towards the village. This was one of Dickens's favourite walks from Gad's Hill, commencing at the lane leading to Higham, turning off to the left at that village, and following the by-road to Chalk, which we had just crossed, and returning by the highway. A short walk brought us to the ivy-mantled church, which stands about a mile from the village, as I have observed that a large proportion of the village churches in Kent do. It is of great antiquity, and moss-grown gravestones several centuries old may be found in the churchyard. Over the entrance are several grotesque figures carved in stone, one of which represents an old monk sitting cross-legged, holding a drinking vessel, which may be supposed to contain some fluid more exhilarating than water. Dickens was much interested in this old fellow, and is said never to have passed the church without greeting the quaint figure with a friendly nod and a jocular remark. There was light enough to enable us to discern this figure, and to note the ancient and moss-grown gravestones half-sunken in the earth, and in some instances almost concealed by the luxuriant herbage. There are some fields between the churchyard and the high road, and having skirted these by the sandy lane, we turned to the right, and with pleasant talk of Dickens and his works beguiling the way, passed through Chalk and Milton into Gravesend. End of chapter 1